Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their personal stories. Many of these veterans, natives of the Bayou country in South Louisiana, were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. They were the last generation to grow up speaking French as their first language. It is therefore imperative that we capture and document their stories and unique language for posterity. When the young Cajuns of World War II arrived in French-dominated territories like North Africa and Europe, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the U.S. military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchie to bridge the language gap. In this episode, we venture to the Mediterranean theater and follow the wartime activities of Bernice Lejeune, a Cajun from Church Point, Louisiana, who served as an army interpreter in North Africa and Italy. Bernice, known by his friends and family as Bernie, was one of perhaps hundreds of French-speaking Cajuns who served as translators in America's first overseas campaigns in Morocco and Algeria, where French was the primary language spoken by the local people. It was on the shores of North Africa where the American army first recognized the need for and the value of French-speaking soldiers. It was well known throughout the country that South Louisiana had the largest population of French-speaking Americans, most of whom were of Acadian Cajun descent. Prior to World War II, however, few in the military appreciated the French Cajun dialect. The stereotype of the Cajun people as illiterate peasants with a backward language had been widely disseminated in American society in the early 20th century. Reporters and travel writers often made fun of the Cajuns for their peculiar language and culture. A journalist for the Associated Press wrote in 1940 that Cajuns from the swampland in southeast Louisiana, quote, live a remote, almost primitive life. Many of them, even today, speak only a patois based on French. The writer said these backwood Cajuns believed in the ideal of American patriotism, but lacked the intelligence to understand the need to register for the military under the Selective Service Act. The writer poked fun of Patriot Martin, who, quote, was distinguished for his ability to stand on his head in a pirogue, but upset when the registrars turned him down because he is 68 years old. They wouldn't take me in the last war, the clever old Cajun was quoted in the news story, because I was too wide this way and too short that way. Now I can throw up one of my wife's biscuits, shoot the flour out of it, and leave the baking powder, and they still don't want me. What kind of defense you call that? He said. Long before the Cajun accent was celebrated the world over, outsiders ridiculed our people for the way we talked and for our sense of humor. If the above story is in fact true, I suspect that Patriot Martin may have been exaggerating his Cajunness just a bit in order to get a rise out of this confused and perhaps gullible reporter. But there was definitely a stigma attached to the Cajuns before the Second World War. 
Bernice Lejeune experienced this firsthand when he was interviewed by an army officer in 1941. And I was sent from here to Livingston. Here. And, uh, <clears throat> and then I went to Cape Sheldon, Mississippi. And then we were interviewed. And I he asked, do you know if you speak French? And I said, yes. And he said, but it's not a good French. He didn't ask me anymore. We couldn't use that. So I was put in the 4th Infantry Division. And I was in the artillery, 13th Brigade, I think it was. And then I took training with this. And I was, I think, in Gordon, Georgia. It came to me one day and he said, you've been transferred. Nothing. Did I do anything wrong? No. He's been transferred. I was sent to Fort Sheridan in Illinois. And that, that I told I would be put into an MPR thing. And I got all sorts of training there. And then for a few months, we were sent through Illinois. We brought mechanized uh, units there, tanks and stuff, and we put sham barrels through the state, did this for a month. And I remember well because the under secretary of the army, I think it was Patterson. Okay. And it was Patterson said, Are you ready to go overseas? And I didn't really believe it. I wasn't ready. <laughs> but I went. I went overseas, but I went overseas in the unit. Later I find out that I was carried in the 4th Infantry Division, which went to England and France, all through the war. And they gave me a number, and I was in this. And I got there, and I went to Casablanca first. I went in 19, very early part of 1943. I went to Casablanca, Africa. Okay. It's clear from this 2004 interview with Bernice that he possessed a distinct, rather delightful-sounding French-Cajun accent. The officer who interviewed him at Camp Shelby in 1941 no doubt picked up on this accent and his Acadian surname and determined that this type of French was not useful to the Army. Nevertheless, considering Bernice's abrupt transfer from an artillery division to an MP company that was sent to North Africa, it's highly possible that this interviewing officer made reference to his bilingual traits on his official military record. It was this transfer of assignment and his ability to speak and write French that ultimately kept Bernice from the front line fighting. Once in Casablanca, he became the official interpreter for a Lieutenant Harm, who was a liaison officer in charge of working with the French army in North Africa. Bernice stayed in the region for seven months, guarding German prisoners and interpreting for this Lieutenant Harm. At this Lieutenant Harm, we can use you. And we went to Ritman, this is the unit that I went with. And we went to Ritman, and I would uh, work with him. When the lines work together, mm -hmm. you know, you have the French, of the Americans and the They said most of the problem was not problem of being to each other, it was misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. 
and he was very pleased with Michael. And uh, I think he kept me from the front line. <laughs> okay. So it helped. It helped. It came in handy. handy. Sometime back in the early 1990s, Bernice was interviewed by Robin Cube, who was working on her master's thesis at the time. She interviewed a handful of Cajuns who served as interpreters during the war and published one of the first scholarly articles on the subject in Louisiana History, the Journal of the Louisiana Historical Society. She titled the article, Cajun Soldiers During World War II, Reflection of Louisiana's French Language and People. This 1994 publication caught my attention when I wrote my master's thesis on a similar topic a decade later. I was fortunate to have tracked her down living in North Carolina, and to my surprise, she still had the cassette tapes of interviews with Bernice and others from almost 30 years ago. We appreciate Robin for contributing to this project and for preserving these precious tapes all these many years. When I got to Africa, and we had various people in there. For example, the fellow who was supposed to be the translator was a fellow from Wisconsin who had studied at the University of Illinois, Stanley Jones. I think he had a master's degree. I think he had thought at the university. Huh. And uh, a truck of merchandise was stolen. And of course, in this case, the French were involved and the American were involved and they wanted to see what was in there what was the content? And you know that it gets cold in Africa sometimes. Really? Yes. Where in Africa was this? This was in Casablanca. Oh, wow. And um, it was going very slow, and I'm standing next to this officer who's supposed to be in China. Just before that, I had spoken to a French officer. And it was going very slow. So that the French officer went to the American, and he said, look, this is taking too long. Because the American would call the object and then the Frenchman would call. He said, I would, why don't you let your American soldier this one call and we'll accept both sides. So it was this or that, you say, chemise, shirt, well, then I become the official uh, interpreter. So you, by just having talked to that general or officer, officer, not a general, yeah, an officer, an officer, by just having talked to him, because it was so convenient. He heard that you spoke French. I spoke with him, you see. Yeah, uh-huh. And I was very complimented because when I walked away, a French soldier was standing there and he says to me in French, where did you learn to speak English? Really? <laughs> well, and I remembered the father in Camp Shelby. <laughs> of course, I had taken an interest, you know. You could find, the army would give you various uh, uh, manuals that you could look at in guides. Uh -huh. And I realized that I could read it. Uh, my mother could read French. From North Africa, Bernice and Lieutenant Harm were sent to Italy to provide liaisons with the French Army and military units fighting alongside the Allied forces at the famous Battle of Monte Cassino. In early 1944, the Allied advancement of the boot of Italy bogged down at the main German defense line, less than 100 miles from Rome. Hovering over the mountainous terrain at the top of Monte Cassino was the Abbey, a 6th century Benedictine monastery. From the summit of Monte Cassino, the German defenders dominated the entire battlefield. It would take the Allies four bloody months of fierce fighting, some of it hand-to-hand, -hand, before they cracked the German defense. Claude Broussard, 
Cajun from New Iberia, Louisiana, fought at the Battle of Monte Cassino in a heavy artillery unit that operated two massive 10-inch cannons. He vividly recalled the entrenched enemy fortifications and the difficult conditions on the smoldering battlefield. When we got overseas, or we, we started in Africa, went to Africa, then to Sicily, then to Italy. We landed on top of sunk ships at Naples. And uh, then we, Casino was our first real battle. Uh, and we, we, we caught hell there. Ooh. And mud, you walk mud up, but go into your boots. And it rained and cold at night. I tell you what, they, they, they give us an order, fire at will. As soon as you put the projector in and you find a choice, let it go. Keep firing. Oh, yeah, and you see they had a tunnel that went to the, to the uh, from the Abbey that went to the railroad station. And that, that, that's where that, that, that big gun was, at the railroad station. And then they could see, and then they, 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 they wire mail started calling on the phone and telling them where to shoot. And they saw the peppers quite a few times. So how long did it take y'all to finally take that position? Well, after they bombed it, uh, everything was gone. I mean, uh, they had uh, British 8-inch guns, they had airplanes. Uh, you know, when, when you see a, uh, a radiator heat, the heat wave, well, that's what it was. You could see that in the sky. Due to the difficult mountainous landscape, along with icy ground conditions, Movement of tanks and trucks and jeeps and armored vehicles up the mountainside was impossible. The only reliable form of transportation was pack mules. The French Corps, which led a successful assault on the Abbey, was made up of seasoned mountaineers with pack mules and regulars to whom mountain warfare was second nature. Bernice Lejeune recalled the contributions of this rugged French unit in this important battle. I got to see you and the Germans had to suck in a long clave and they couldn't bulge them out. And because all around it was surrounded and what was on there was trees and you couldn't go up there with mechanized division. So the French were there and they had built out And you know, I think that's when they really dislodged them. They went loaded on mules, all the artillery pieces on top of the mountain for months. And when they opened up, everybody, you know, the Americans were, and the British and the others were ready too. They started falling up from the top, and as the Germans didn't know where it came from, they never thought you could get up there. Yeah. And you couldn't get up with a truck or a tank. Or a tank. You could get it there because they didn't drag the thing, they dressed. And we could pack. At night. For his role in the Battle of Monte Cassino, Bernice helped his commanding officer, Lieutenant Harm, communicate with various French forces. I was there and I was this witness, Lieutenant Harm. And you get things to do there with keeping the liaison or something, but he didn't speak a word of French. And this officer came in and this Frenchman asked, 
He wanted equipment to take up there. Very important thing. And I was left there. And this fellow was another fellow who was supposed to. And this American got very, very angry. Because the Frenchman was talking to me. He used the word, the demand. It's like the demand in English, except that it doesn't have that hard thing. You're not demanding in the sense that we think about in English. It doesn't have that meaning. Okay. If the French want to, want to use something stronger. So he was, he was being trying to be friendly and trying to ask. Well, he and he asked in his language, which was not. He was not being I demand. Not that way. But the American thought that's was. the word you use in English. Mm. You might have said that. Insist with me. I insist. But in stronger. That's not the word. This guy was very angry. So that he sort of dismissed the French. So this whole own looking home, I'm going with this colonel somewhere. And then he came back and he said to me, you know, I had come up very friendly with him. He said, he uh, got the job done? I said, he did need me. And I don't know he didn't need me. Following the hard-fought Allied victory at Casino, the American forces took Rome and advanced north into the treacherous mountain region of the Po Valley, another German stronghold. E.J. LeBlanc, a Cajun from Erath, Louisiana, fought in the Po Valley campaign as a specialist with the 10th Mountain Division, one of the best trained infantry units in the U.S. military. As a kid growing up hunting and trapping on Marsh Island during the winters with his father and brothers, E.J. had harnessed his skills as a backwoodsman and a sharpshooter. Living out in the marsh for three months at the age of 14 would definitely make a man out of you, he said. These life lessons no doubt gave him an added advantage in a critical combat situation that saved the lives of his comrades and earned him a silver star during a heated battle in the snow-capped mountains of the Po Valley. I was the, uh, the scout, first scout, and I got off the ridge. Everybody was in the back of me. I got off the ridge and got down in the ravine. And all of a sudden, across on the other hill, the uh, German opened up fire. Uh-huh. They had all the company uh, pinned down. And uh, I was jammed where I was. I couldn't go up, I couldn't go down. Because if I'd moved, they'd see me and shoot me down. Yes. So I went down, kept on down the ravine, when I got down the ravine, they had uh, a highway, and they had a culvert. I crawled through that culvert all the way through on the other side, and there the German was right on the other side of me. I threw a grenade, and I killed three and captured four. E.J. LeBlanc was one of those Cajun Frenchies who wore his nickname on his sleeve like a badge of honor. I had a lot of friends. They called yeah. me, call me Frenchy. They called you Frenchy? Yeah. <laughs> now why is that? Huh? Why is that? Well, I guess I'm not too good at speaking. Speaking English? Yeah. 
Were you able to use your French? Were you in Italy? Yeah, a little bit. Uh -huh. uh, some of the uh, Italian could speak French. Uh -huh. They didn't give you a hard time, though, huh? Them boys in your union? Uh, oh, no. Yeah. They, they respected you? Oh, yeah. Even though you were a little different? Yeah. From Casino, Bernice Lejeune and his lieutenant went on to Anzio, another important battle that involved multiple Allied forces, including the French. Casino stays in my mind that I was also in Anzio. That I would go whatever this guy had something to do, and particularly if it was that the French were involved. Now the French, I would be told him, and spoke to the Americans. They would have taken me and housed me as an officer if they would let me and I be with them as an American. Mm -hmm. He says all our problem would be solved. Be good. I guess even the Cajun knows a little bit of the French ways. Mm -hmm. And I knew the American way. I knew, for example, the difference between that demand and some other words that are like that, that you could avoid pronouncing the word, right? But the, the Americans, they won't, they won't let you go, huh? Yes. This fellow said, it's up to you. you know, we can't demand you to do anything like that. But you know, there was other. I knew that I was getting high on points. You spent uh, so much time at the front there, you get points. And I was about ready to come home, and I'll take it. Supposedly that I go there, and then nobody can find me. And then I'm not sure if it was going to be. So did you ever find yourself in like uh, in conversations with a group of French guys or maybe at a local watering hole? Or, you know, because oh, yeah. Americans and the French were all in the same area. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you had the ability to communicate with these yeah. fellows. Yeah. So you, you talked to a lot of these guys? Oh, yeah. So your Cajun French was useful. Very useful. They don't. They didn't know that I was in the Volkswagen. Because you know, some of them had escaped even to this country. Yeah. Find themselves. They didn't know. But I, I think that I spoke French maybe better than some Cajun. Yeah. I could read it a little bit. For example, I get the French newspaper from somebody I can read it. Yeah. As one of the older GIs serving overseas, Bernice decided to take the points and the opportunity to come home from the war. He had been gone for about three years. Upon his return to the States, he met a nice girl at a USO dance in New York, married her, and eventually settled down in Lafayette, Louisiana. He lived a long life and passed away in 2012. His obituary mentioned that he was very proud of his Acadian heritage. He looked forward to the Festival Acadien held each year in Lafayette's Girard Park, where he enjoyed meeting tourists and teachers from Francophone countries. He loved studying French grammar and reading the French newspaper. It's interesting to know that of all the amazing stories he recalled from his memory long ago, that particular interview with an American officer at Camp Shelby in 1941 stood out for him. How ironic that his undervalued Cajun French language became so valuable when the American military needed it most. 
This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. These interviews are part of the Jason Terrio World War II Oral History Collection housed at the Center for Louisiana Studies on the campus of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. To listen to the full, unedited versions of more than 150 interviews, visit the Center for more. Music provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. Audio editing done by Chris Segura. Special thanks to the Acadian Museum in Erath, Louisiana, and to the Atchafalaya National Heritage Area for its general support of this program. Funding for the Frenchie Podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. Since its founding in 1968, Codafil's mission as Louisiana's French agency has been to support and grow Louisiana's Francophone communities through scholarships, French immersion, and various other community and language skill building programs.